As I said, the series is called Blessed, and it's based in uh, the Sermon on the Mount, which we've said is the Kingdom of God manifesto. In other words, uh, here's what life is like in the Kingdom of God or the Kingdom of Heaven. And of course, the most obvious question is, well, where is the Kingdom of Heaven? Where is the Kingdom of God? Jesus made this clear that you need look no further than right inside of you. The kingdom of God is in you because that's where Christ is recognized as king. That's where you decide to turn authority for your life, control over your life, over to him in your heart. It doesn't just happen out here or only in your words, but it happens in your heart. When in your heart you enthrone Christ as king, you should start seeing certain behavioral adjustments, also attitudinal ones as well. Jesus reigning in your life will begin to reflect in and through your life the symptoms, the characteristics, the indications that you are living in the kingdom of God. Now, in this kingdom, Jesus lists a series of eight principles that govern life in the kingdom. These are not things you try to do. These are things that God does in and through you as you come into his kingdom and live under his authority. Remember, the first was, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit. And we said this, I admit in entering the kingdom, my failure to effectively run my own life on my own, and I turn control over to God. The kingdom of God begins to happen in you the moment you turn ownership for everything you are, everything you have, to Christ. That means you give Him your house and your car and your relationships. But, and some people have trouble with that, but it also means you give Him all your problems all your struggles, all your hassles, all your challenges. Oh, and, and guess what? You are turning over your job, your car, your house, your wife, your husband, your children, your grandchildren to someone who has greater purposes and loves them more than you do. Okay? So it's not a problem. I admit my failure and turn control over to God. The second was, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. And we said, I return to the cross again and again to surrender. Because I recognize that once I've turned control of my life over to God, I can easily snap back and start trying to run the show myself. In fact, if I find myself getting into trouble in the midst of the day, there's a very good chance that I don't need to look any further than right there. At some point, I decided to sit back down on the throne of my own life. I decided to do things the way I wanted them done or react the way I thought was appropriate. And there I have a moment where I can again surrender control to Christ again and again. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. I rest in him. Once I've 
turn control of my life over to him. Now I don't have to struggle. I don't have to worry. I don't have to strive. I know it doesn't depend upon me. Instead of trying to become more of what I'm supposed to be, I let him make me all I'm supposed to be in his kingdom. Life becomes much easier. That brings us to today's fourth beatitude. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Hunger and thirst. We say today, I long for more and grow in Christ. By the way, that's a natural human tendency that we believe God put inside of you to not just be satisfied with the status quo. To want to learn and grow and develop and become more than you are. That desire is from God. But it's something that only He can produce in you. Blaise Pascal was a 17th century philosopher and he said it best, I think. He said, there is a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of every man and woman which cannot be filled by any created thing but only by the Creator. There is a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of every man, every woman. Hmm. And there is a desire to fill that emptiness. There is a drive, we might say, to find what fits in that hole. Many of us have tried at various times all kinds of things to try to fit in that place. We are reminded again and again by our own experience of what Pascal said. Okay, God-shaped vacuum, only God's going to be able to fill a hole that size, that shape. The word that comes to mind is this word. I looked it up in the dictionary. Tight. Hunger and thirst are appetites. Instinctive desire necessary to sustain life. God gave you appetite, and it keeps you alive, doesn't it? By the way, one of the signs of disease and sickness is loss of appetite, isn't it? Okay. It's one of the chief things we discover with people who've lived very healthy and full lives and are generally pretty happy, but are now um, at Fairhaven uh, 95, 100, 105 years old. We have more than a handful of over 100-year-old people there. And they're all functioning, still walking around, talking, going to chapel, all of that. But you know what I often hear them say? They'll sit right in front of a luscious plate of food and say, I just don't feel like eating. I'll even hear some of them have an argument with the person who serves the food, saying like, I, I, just, I think I already ate lunch. And they'll go like, no, that was breakfast. Okay. Okay. Yeah, well, I don't think I need to eat again. Don't want that. They've lost their appetite. Of course, we have to stay on them and try to help in every way we can because if you don't keep eating, you're not going to keep living. 
appetite is that way. But did you know, you don't just have physical appetite. You also have, for instance, intellectual appetite. Okay, If you stop learning, <laughs> your brain also starts dying and atrophying. Same process. Okay, And it's also true that you have spiritual appetite. Spiritual appetite is the instinctive longing of every human heart to possess Christ in your heart as king, as Lord. There is a desire once you enter the kingdom to have more and more of Christ. In fact, it's one of the tests that you can lay down. Am I living in the kingdom? Do I want more of Christ? I mean, that happens sometimes. When you first come to Christ, you can't get enough and you can't get it fast enough, right? Right? And then at some point you may find, you know, I'm just not as interested in reading the Word. I, I don't mind missing church. I'm not, I'm not talking to God throughout the day. What's wrong, Pastor? And of course, the, you would say, probably, the answer is that you need, to, you need to have appetite in those areas. But the thing is, I'm going to tell you that's not the problem. The problem is likely Christ is no longer king in your heart because he produces that appetite. When he's reigning in your life, you can't get enough of him. The moment you start trying to call the shots yourself and run your own life again, you'll find those desires start to fade. So rather than saying, oh, i got to get to church. Oh, i got to get my Bible and get up in the morning and read it. Rather than do that, though I don't not like those things, I'm just simply saying, not really the root problem. It's a good idea to stop and say, you know, Christ, I want you to reign and rule in my heart today. I want to give myself afresh to you. I want to belong to you. I want your will to be done today. And then watch and see if suddenly you don't get your appetite back. You want to get into the Word. You want to be with God's people. You want to pray. Where did that come from? Okay, It came from Christ ruling in your heart. Again, the principle is this. I long for more and I grow in Christ. Let's, let's look at some principles then from the Bible that relate to this idea. First is this. Those who live in the kingdom of God become more like the king, Christ, every day and in every way. When we say, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, we're really saying, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for Christ. <laughs> because only he is righteous. The problem is, of course, you've made the word righteous just a kind of a religious term. Righteous means everything is right. That wasn't too complicated, was it? It means everything just as it's supposed to be. It means everything as God designed it to be. In the beginning, man was created to live in dependence upon God. What happened in the garden? The idea, really, that Adam and Eve could do a better job taking care of themselves, right? That they could 
do a better job making decisions for themselves, that they could do a better job deciding what was best for them themselves. And as their relatives, as their ancestors, we've inherited that same tendency to think that way. But the truth is, we were made for righteousness. In other words, there's a right way for us to live. There's a right way for us to think. There's a right way for us to behave. But because it has been many, 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 many generations since man lived that way in the garden, where are we going to see a picture of that? Where? Christ. <laughs> Christ is the picture of that. He is, uh, according to Paul in Romans, the second Adam, right? He's another shot at seeing what man would look like under, living under the control and authority of God in perfect fellowship with Him. His behavior that was different from ours, His way of thinking and acting and relating that varied from ours was not a result of His trying harder. It was a result of His drawing life from and living closer to the Father. In 1 John chapter 3, uh, the Apostle John says this, Now we are the children of God, and what we will be, meaning when we all eventually get to heaven, has not yet been made known. We can't really see it. But we know this, when Christ appears, when's Christ going to appear? Yeah, when he's ready, that's exactly right. And when he's ready, is going to come in one of two, good answer, one of two forms, right? He's going to return someday. That may not be in our lifetime, or that could be this afternoon. Yes, could be before the Super Bowl. We may not even know who won, right? Okay, he's coming back. But it's not just that, is it? Because throughout 2,000 years, <laughs> those people saw Christ, but not in his return, didn't they? Death will bring that. Okay, As a believer, the moment you take your last breath, you stand before him. When Christ appears, we will be like him. Why? We're living in the kingdom of God. We're living under His authority. We're seeing Him for who He is. We're surrendering everything to Him. We're forgetting about the hassles and worries of this world. We're with Him. For we shall see Him as He is. So in the kingdom of heaven, we're in a bit of a process, aren't we? We're learning how to live like Christ, how to look like Christ, how to behave and think like Christ. And someday this process will be fulfilled. Paul talks about it in Philippians 1.6. He says, I'm confident of this, that he who began a good work in you, good work is the work of righteousness, the work of restoring you to right standing with God, the work of restoring you to righteousness. A good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day 
of Christ Jesus. The day of Christ Jesus is just Paul's way of saying what John said. When he appears, the day of Christ Jesus. In the kingdom of God, in the kingdom of heaven, those who are there are becoming more every day like Christ. So what is Christ like? Well, the king is righteous. That is, he's right. There's nothing about Jesus that's wrong. Lots of stuff still about me that's wrong. The king is righteous, so his people long to be, another way to say that is, hunger and thirst for righteousness. One of the best ways to recognize your bad behavior, truly bad behavior, not just socially bad behavior, but behavior that doesn't fit in the kingdom of God, is that when you're living in the kingdom of God and there is something unrighteous going on in your life, you immediately feel like something's not right. Something needs to change. That's what leads us to repentance. Now, if you're not living in the kingdom of God, you still may want to live up to certain religious norms. But that same sensitivity to the lack of righteousness doesn't exist. In other words, if all of the rest of the world thinks you're okay, then you feel good about yourself. In the kingdom of heaven, anything that's unrighteous makes you uneasy. It makes you uncomfortable. It is even painful for you. Paul describes how the redemptive process produces this righteousness in us in Romans 8.29. For those God foreknew, in other words, long before you ever made a decision to trust Christ as your Savior and enter the kingdom, He knew you were going to do it. He didn't make it happen. You made it happen by choosing But he knew it. Those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. In other words, those that he knew would enter the kingdom, he had a plan for you. A certain plan. That you would be conformed to the image of his son. Okay. In other words, God's plan all along in sending Christ to die for your past sins, And to give you the grace of heaven in Christ for your present challenges was so that in the future you would be just like Christ. Amen indeed. That was a hearty and well-placed amen. Amen for sure. Yeah, that day is coming. But guess what? Every day we move a step closer to that day, don't we? John writes in his epistle, Whoever claims to live in Christ must live as Jesus did. You know what we call living as Jesus did? Righteousness. Righteousness. Now, by the way, uh, we often encourage people, think about what Jesus would do. But the truth is that that probably won't work for you. What you need to do is surrender your life to Christ, and let Him produce what Jesus would do in your life. 
So where do we get this righteousness? Where do I receive and access the righteousness of Christ? Paul has a great deal to say about this. First of all, in 2 Corinthians 5.21. I looked up the word righteousness in the dictionary, and it says righteousness is the quality of being morally right. Truth is, it is the quality, biblically speaking, of being right, being the way God wanted you to be. But the Bible also speaks of two kinds of righteousness, and we should be really clear of the two kinds, because the one kind doesn't work, and the one kind does work. And so that's probably pretty good to know, isn't it? Okay. The first kind is what we call acquired righteousness. That means I straighten up my act. I try real hard to be better, okay? And when I'm not good, I try to do it in private so that nobody notices, okay? That's acquired righteousness. I'm really acquiring an image of righteousness in the society in which I live. Not a bad thing to have, by the way. It just won't get you into the kingdom of God, (laughs) okay? I highly recommend this kind of straight-laced living, but... It's not what brings us to God. In fact, Paul's pretty clear about it. Listen to what he says in Romans 3. As it is written, there is no one righteous. Not even one. Now, isn't it curious? He didn't say there is no one who is religious. Because there are lots of those people. But there is no one righteous. Not even one. There's no one who understands. He goes into greater detail. There's no one who seeks after God. For all have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good. Not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of viper is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. That's not a very pretty picture, is it? Okay. That's us trying to be good enough. That's us pursuing the result of righteousness rather than embracing righteousness. That's Acquired righteousness. Now, when it comes to acquired righteousness, some of you are more righteous than others. Okay? But, as Paul will point out later in Romans, it doesn't matter because it all falls immeasurably short of God's holy standard. The other kind of righteousness is imputed righteousness. That's a funny word, isn't it? It means righteousness that is transferred from the account of another. Righteousness that is not earned, but given as a gift. We sang it in a couple of different songs today. And here it is from 2 Corinthians 5.21. God made him who had no sin. Who was that? Christ. Yeah, only Christ. To be sin for us. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. A grand exchange happened at the cross, didn't it? 
He took our sin. He offered us His righteousness. Now guess what? There are two things you have to do to receive the imputed righteousness of Christ. You notice the two things? They're in this verse. The first is you have to give Christ what? Your sin. That's right. You got to say, I'm going to stop trying to clean up my act and do better and make up for what I've done because it's not working. I'm going to give it to you and let you nail it to the cross. Okay. In return, Jesus says, now I can give you my righteousness. You give him your sin, you receive or take his righteousness. So if you take Christ's righteousness, then you stop trying to be good enough on your own, don't you? Ends a lot of frustration. Okay. Because you are righteous in Christ by his imputed righteousness. Paul writes this in Romans chapter 6. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live what kind of life? A new life. What, what is the word for this new life? Starts with R. Righteous. That's righteousness. This new life given to you by Christ in exchange for what you've given him. In baptism, we do that same thing. When we go under the water, we're saying we're being buried to dying to self. We're really just giving Christ our sin, right? Okay. When we rise out of the water... We're rising and welcoming and receiving His righteousness. Next principle. And so it is that in the kingdom, the closer we draw to Him, in the kingdom, we hunger and thirst for more righteousness because we hunger and thirst for more of Christ. And as we do, we draw nearer and nearer to Him. Drawing close to Christ generally means this. It's not always the same for everybody, but typically I've seen it to be this way. <laughs> you start out and you have great Sunday experiences. And then you start welcoming Christ and your faith to come to bear on what's happening in your life on Monday. Okay, And then a problem comes up on Thursday and you do it. And you start spending more time with God until he's involved in most of the areas of your life. You still have a few areas that pretty much you've always handled on your own so you don't invite him. Sometimes that's like finances, your personal relationships, um, stuff like that. You go like, well, I've always done okay with those. So I, and then you probably get into trouble in one of those areas and you recognize, why am I trying to run this on my own? You surrender that as well. Okay? And every time you do, you draw closer to Christ. And then pretty soon, you've started to develop an appetite for more of Christ. 
Okay, You look forward to every experience, even if it's a loss, because you know it will draw you closer to Him. Paul wrote this in uh, Galatians. <laughs> My dear children, I continue in the pains of childbirth. Now, he's using that as a metaphor because this is a man who's writing this, okay? And he has no clue, I know. But he's saying like, like there's this painful process a, a woman goes through to produce a child, the joy of having a child, and I'm going through that kind of pain with you until Christ is fully formed in you. That's the process. That, that's the process of life in the kingdom of heaven as we reside down here on earth. Every day, he's using everything that comes into my life to shape me, to form me, to make me more like Christ. Paul uses in 2 Corinthians a story from the Old Testament to illustrate. He says, remember how Moses used to go up to the mountain and when he went up to the mountain, he would talk face to face with God. Then when he would come down the mountain, he had to put a veil on his face because his face was so glowing that people couldn't even look at him. So Paul says that's a picture of our experience. We all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into His image with ever-increasing glory. Ever-increasing glory which comes from our efforts, from our church, from our pastor. No, none of those. It comes from the Lord. With the Spirit. In other words, this is something only God can do in you. Finally, in the kingdom of heaven, the more we follow His ways, the more we reveal His will. If you've ever fallen in love with someone, then you know that at some point you also fall in love with their ways. And the more you love their ways, the more you love them. Like, you love the way they talk. You love the way they move. You love the way they wear their hair or don't wear their hair. You love these things about them. Okay? In the Old Testament, particularly in the wisdom literature of Psalms and Proverbs, they bring this up again and again. God, I love you. I love your ways. You know where God's ways are revealed? In the scriptures, right. Okay, And there's a connection here. Okay. Growth in your love for Christ happens in your personal relationship with Him. Okay, But it is fostered by the more you understand, apply, and embrace His ways. Notice this from 2 Corinthians 3.16. You're probably familiar with these words. All scripture is is inspired or God-breathed, and it's useful. But notice what the Bible's useful for. It'll teach you. It'll rebuke you. Oh, by the way, if you only study favorite passages of the Bible because they make you feel good, okay, you need to get a little broader perspective because until you read the Word and occasionally you have to say, ouch, you're probably not getting the full benefit of it. Correcting and, I love this part, 
Training in righteousness. Okay. How do I know even what righteousness is? Since I'm unrighteous, I live in an unrighteous world, I go to an unrighteous church, okay? Life can be unrighteous. How do I know righteousness? It's revealed in God's Word, and as I take God's Word and implant it in my heart, He begins to shape me in His righteous image. In the 119th Psalm, David says the same thing. He asks the question, it's a a rhetorical question. How can a young person stay on the path of purity? Another way to say that is, how can you live a righteous life in an unrighteous world with all kinds of unrighteous passions? By living according to your word. I seek you with all my heart. Do not let me stray from your commands. Next slide. I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Planted the word of God in my heart. That's where the kingdom is established, right? Okay. My laws for life come from your words. You're the righteous king. I listen to your ways and word. I put them into practice. My life produces righteousness. Next slide. St. Augustine said this. Because God has made us for himself. Another way to say that is, he made us for righteousness. Our hearts are restless. Another way to say that is, we hunger, we thirst, we long for something more. Until they rest in him. Don't be surprised if living in the kingdom of heaven, having surrendered your life to Christ's rule, doesn't produce an unusual sense of hunger, discomfort, longing for more. It's part of the natural process because when you step into the kingdom, all you have is one foot in the kingdom. You haven't even begun to enjoy all that the kingdom has to offer that's found in Christ's righteousness. Peter writes this in 2 Peter 3.18. He's closing his letter and he says, So grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Growth in righteousness is the process that begins When you live moment by moment, day by day, situation by situation, in the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. They shall be satisfied. Let's pray. Father, we thank you today for your word and for the reminder that there often seems like something's missing because, in fact, something's missing. We weren't made to live under our own authority and we weren't made to live by our own ways or by what seems best to us. We were made to live according to your righteous plan and design. Thank you for offering that to us at the cross. 
we come this morning anew to the cross and say, give us more of Christ, give us your righteousness. In Jesus' name, amen.